This episode of the podcast comes with a health warning. This edition of the show was recorded just before I tested positive for COVID-19. Hopefully your antivirus software will prevent you from contracting coronavirus. But just in case, I wouldn't get too close to your phone or computer as you listen to the show. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. She's Sarah. Hello. He's Zog. Hello. I'm Gareth, and I don't know how you two managed over the weekend, but I struggled to watch all the wonderful motorsport that happened over the weekend. Something out to give. There was too much. There was qualifying on Friday. There was the sprint Saturday. There was the race Sunday, there was the WEC on Saturday, there was IndyCar NXT or IndyCar Next on Sunday evening, followed by the IndyCar race in Birmingham, Alabama, which was a cracker. Too much motorsport! Ah, you can't have too much motorsport, come on. Fair enough. Yeah, we're the last people to say that. But I am slightly concerned that the sprint is taking away a little bit of the specialness is that a word? Specialness of the Grand Prix weekend. You know, you look forward to that one big race, but then you've got this other half race. How do you feel about the sprint, Sarah? Well, I think they're displaying what every sport in the world, or well, lots of sports in the world do, you know, like a, a modified version or, or a variation of what they used to. I mean, you look at the cricket, they do the T20, like a bit of a super sport to their actual sport. So I, I think they do it to try and add some life into the sport rather than just the same old. So I can see the purpose of it. Do you think it's beneficial or do you think it's a waste of time? Personally, I found it really tricky on Friday Mm. because the the, the upshot of the new weekend layout and schedule is that having qualifying on Friday means that I absolutely have to be in front of the television for at least an hour or more on Friday. And that's a work day for most people, including me. It's pretty tricky. But I usually have hours of practice on in the background while I'm doing other stuff. But as it was what they call a meaningful session, I have to give my full attention to it. And I'm wondering how many people can actually do that. So did you watch Quali on Friday live? I did. And for me, the experiment with this new format was a success because I had something consequential going on on Friday and on Saturday and on Sunday. Of course, if you're a fan, you want to watch all of the action. But actually having all of this happening over the weekend means that if you do miss a session, yeah, if you miss the qualifying, it's not the end of the world because you've got a sprint race on the Saturday and then the real race on Sunday. Yeah, I like the new format. It worked for me. I do have the same reservation that you mentioned there about how the sprint race sort of takes a little bit of attention away and a little bit of the importance away from the race on Sunday because you're kind of splitting the big event into, you know, almost the same big event and then a slightly smaller event. And I'm still not entirely sure about that. But overall, I like the new weekend. And uh, yeah, let's see how the next one plays out. I'm surprised to hear you say that you quite like it because I would have thought that you were more of a quality than a quantity man. <laughs> so, you know, one yeah. great race that was the entire focus of the action rather than sort of spreading it around a bit. Sure. Oh, yeah. Also, I'm wondering, the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, 
we can't say the race anymore because there are two races over the weekend, the Grand Prix as opposed to the sprints. The Grand Prix itself was significantly less exciting than Azerbaijani Grand Prix have been in the past. And I'm wondering if somehow that is a function of the new schedule of the weekend. It wasn't the most thrilling race, Sarah, was it? Azerbaijan Grand Prix? Well, yeah, I think you're right. I think it was fairly straightforward. I mean, the most exciting thing, I suppose, it showed how good the Red Bull cars are. They easily overtook Charles Leclerc without too much effort, really. Yeah. Aston Martin is still doing really well, but I have been reading that even Toto Wolff says that the race was boring in inverted commas and Formula One needs to look at what to do about it, that it certainly wasn't a thrilling race. There was no overtaking. Even with a big pace difference, it just wasn't great entertainment, he said. So that is obviously also felt by you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with a lot of what Toto Wolf says. I think he's a fab, rational man, as Tycho pointed out to me the other day. Dad, Toto Wolf is the Jurgen Klopp of Formula One. And I don't follow football, but I do know who Jurgen Klopp is. If I knew what a Jurgen Klopp was, I might uh, be able to yeah. comment on that. But I've no idea what a, a Jurgen Klopp is or where it lives. Jurgen Klopp is the Toto Wolf of football. Oh, okay, right, got it, got it. So they're saying here also that maybe it was because Baku was the first to run a revised sprint format, and maybe that made the race boring in the end, who knows? I wonder how much the different weekend format really affected the race. I think if the race was a little bit more processional than one might like, it's more to do with the fact that it's a very challenging track to pass on. And Baku is pretty good for overtaking, they say, isn't it? I think it's a great looking track. I tend to enjoy the Baku races, even if there isn't always as much action as you might like. There was certainly drama and tension at the front, even if there wasn't as much shuffling about of the order as you might want. I enjoyed the race and I was rather surprised that there wasn't a red flag at some point. I was, after, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, <laughs> after what had gone on earlier the weekend, I kind of made a prediction to myself that there'd, be, that there'd be two red flags during the race and I'm delighted that they managed to avoid that. I predicted three. I was convinced there could be three red yeah. flags during the race. I, but the nearest we got was one safety car, wasn't it, when De Vries clipped the wall and broke his front yeah. steering arm. And that was the key moment that kind of decided how the race was going to end because Lewis had stopped just before that incident. So he was right. yep. out of sequence, didn't get the advantage of stopping during a yellow flag. Verstappen stopped before the yellow flag came out because they were convinced that De Vries was going to get going again. And so that actually gave... Sorry, I won't say gay. That allowed Perez to win. And on that, didn't Perez drive a cracking flat-out race? Sarah, is he going to beat Max for the championship? I think he's hoping to, that's for sure. But he is behind Max Verstappen on points, even though they've both won two Grand Prix each. He's also got points from the sprint. The sprint, yeah, there you go. And finishing on the podium in different positions, I think he's six points, I think, behind Max. But he's looking determined, isn't he? It'd be great. I'd really like Perez to get the championship over Max this year. I think a lot of people would. I'd really like to put Max Verstappen in his place because don't forget, remember when last season... Sergio Perez was up against Charles Leclerc for second place in the championship and Max Verstappen ignored team orders to try yeah. and help facilitate Sergio Perez win that second place. So Max Verstappen, I mean, his behaviour has been 
fairly disgusting at times. He's been a very naughty boy, that's what you're saying. (laughs) He's a very naughty boy. He's not the most desired teammate, that's for sure. I think there'd be a lot of people that would be very happy to see Sergio Perez do well this year ahead of Max Verstappen. Max had a go at George after the race, didn't he, Zog? Did you see that? He did, yeah. I thought that was a bit beneath Verstappen, really, to be that petulant, that sort of whiny. Yeah. You know, I thought it looked to me like they were both racing hard and fair. Russell got a bit of understeer in that corner. He didn't intend, I think, to nudge Verstappen like that. He just went a little bit wide, and that's why there was contact. That's racing. That's their business. It's absolutely nothing that Verstappen hasn't done many, many times and felt was perfectly okay when the boot's on the other foot. So, yeah, no big deal, no drama. I don't see what he was so unhappy about. Just get on with it. Come on. Yeah, is Max a little bit rattled by Perez's performance, Sarah, possibly? Probably, yeah, I'd say so. I don't think he likes the idea that Perez is doing well, but, I mean, they're both in the same car, aren't they? Well, very similar cars. Yeah, I think Max Verstappen would like to see himself as being the number one driver in any team, and I think that's where it became a bit unstuck between Max and Daniel, I suppose, at the time. Yeah, I'm wondering if this season is going to be like the, what was it, the 2016? Yeah, when Nico Rosberg beat Lewis for the only time, really, wasn't it? Well, that's an interesting comparison, because I was thinking about that same comparison earlier this weekend. There's a similar dynamic here in that you've got two drivers in what is the quickest car in the field. Obviously, one of those drivers is going to win the World Championship. One of them is the clear favourite, and is clearly the quickest. Much as I love Checo Perez, Verstappen is quicker. Hamilton was quicker than Rosberg, and for Rosberg to beat Hamilton, he had to pull out all the stops and find all of the little psychological tricks and edges he could find here and there and seize every advantage. I mean, I think one of the reasons he retired after beating Hamilton is, you know, he knew he was never going to pull off that kind of coup again, you know, go out on a high. I thought there was something quite cool about the way that he walked away from the sport after pulling off such a remarkable coup, and it was remarkable. Now, for Perez to beat Verstappen, and I think maybe he can, I think it would be terrific if he did, but Perez does have to find more consistency and he has to find more performance. I just don't know whether he can do those two things for the rest of the season. You know, he might be able to unlock that extra performance with the confidence that the first part of the season has given him and knowing that he's got such a good car under him and knowing that he has beaten Max, but he's got to find performance and consistency. Sergio seems to do well on what we loosely term street circuits and that can mean something as incredibly fast as Azerbaijan or something as immensely slow as Monaco you know if you've got a finite barrier as opposed to a huge runoff area Checo seems to be the one who can get the most out of his car under those circumstances he won at Monaco he won at Singapore He's won in Saudi Arabia and now twice in Azerbaijan. That's showing, I wouldn't say a specialist, but he's very good under those circumstances. Can he translate it to more open, faster circuits? Although, to be fair, to find a faster circuit might be hard. Did you see that the top speed on one of the straights in Baku was 215 miles per hour? They're really flying, aren't they? 
It's quite a long straight, the main straight and backer, isn't it? Yeah. How long are they on the throttle for? I don't know. It's 60% of the whole lap. I know that. They're on yeah. full throttle. But I don't know about how long they, that actually that that straight, straight is. Yeah. It's two kilometres. Yeah. I know it's that. It's two kilometres long, which is incredible, really. Yeah, something like sort of 15 or 20 seconds, I guess. And it added to the spectacle. And talking to spectacles, didn't Baku look fantastic? Zog, you said yourself, I was looking at one of the buildings. One of the buildings seems to have either a running track or a cycle track on the roof of it. And Azerbaijan looks like an absolutely fascinating place to go to for a race. I'd love to be at that one. Where would you two like to go? Any favourites? Well, I've not done the Monaco one. That seems to have the most atmosphere and probably the most obvious choice for a spectator. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that one. And then I've been to the Australian one. Where else would I like? The Abu Dhabi one would be good. It's the end of the season. Yeah, a bit mm. of fun afterwards. That would be good. Yeah, Singapore I'd like to go to because I think it looks like Blade Runner when they run there. Mm. I agree. Singapore would be a great one to go to. I'd love to see how the Vegas race Oh, yes, yeah, of there. course. That would be an interesting one. I love new races. I think we ought to have at least one new circuit every year. And if we've got 20, how many races are there? 234 this year? It's, it seems like 25 races, 23, 22, 20, I don't know. I, I've got 23 in mind. Um, right. 23, 23 is the number that's coming to mind. With that yeah. number of races every year, surely we can rotate and have like a wild card race thrown in every year because new circuit where we don't have the data usually gives you better results. Yeah, I don't know. I think something like that, any sort of scheme that you'd have for defining what circuits are on the calendar isn't going to last long enough for any kind of wild card every year thing to work out, I think. The calendar changes regularly either because Formula One decides that it wants to be more active in a certain area geographically, getting into a particular market, or because a circuit decides that it doesn't want to pay the outrageous amounts of money that they're being asked to pay to host a race, or because a circuit isn't considered up to scratch anymore. You know, there are reasons why circuits come on to and off the calendar. It's usually cash, yeah. isn't it? F1 follows the money, and whoever bids or is prepared to pay the astronomical yeah. fee that the Formula One organisations charge for having a race. We've got how many races in America now? We've got Las Vegas this year, Three. we've got Miami, and we've got Texas, yeah. Whatever happened? Do you remember there was a plan? very recently to have a sort of a New Jersey slash New York race. Why didn't that happen in the end? I think, I assume that didn't happen just because when the idea of you know, adding another North American F1 race came up, that was a candidate, but they decided to go with Las Vegas. I think the upshot of this is that Perez, you could argue, has something like four or five home races now. Obviously, Mexico, right? That is the definitive home race. The Red Bull ring in Austria, that's technically a home race for Red Bull. So that's another home race for Perez. Silverstone is also a home race for Red Bull, as it is for most of the teams. You've also got Miami, which is pretty well represented by people from Mexico. And Texas. Texas, for real, yeah. yeah. Five home races. I'm going to put my money on Perez as a result of that. Yeah, it should give me a little extra boost, fingers crossed. The other action over the weekend. Sarah, I don't know if you saw the WEC race at Spa, the six hours of Spa, but a historically significant event happened at that race, which I know is going to make you smile. Certainly made me smile. You know what I'm talking about, Zog? 
Ah, yes, absolutely. For the first time, a woman driver won an FIA WEC race. Yes! I, I thought you were going to say that. So I, I actually, unfortunately, missed the race. But, yeah, I'm very pleased to hear that. Yeah, it was fantastic. Lilo Wadu became the first Robin, as Zog quite correctly points out, to win a WEC race in a Ferrari she was driving in the, That's right. yep, yep. the GTE AM class, as it is now. Three things struck me about this. Number one, yay! Women winning in the WEC. Number two... She's the living image of Vanina X, who is my all-time favourite female driver. Third thing, she's 22, which means she's got a very healthy career ahead of her. If she's that quick, that young, she's going to be around for a while. Yeah. Bless her. I, congratulations. I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more from her in future. See what she goes on to from here. And it brings me back to something I've mentioned before. I truly believe that... At least at Le Mans, possibly in the rest of the WEC season, I think each team should be mandated to run a female driver in their team of three now. If we've shown that there is talent out there that women can win, let's get more women on the grid. I know I've said it before and I don't want to be boring, but I can't see why the WEC or Le Mans isn't doing that egalitarianism, that equality thing. They do it in extreme E, and why can't we do it? Why can't we do it in WEC? I have a lot of sympathy for your view there. I'm not myself entirely convinced that mandating a kind of gender balance in teams is necessarily the way to go in a field that's... I mean, you compare to extreme E. Extreme E, though, is a smaller field, and from the very start, this was part of the sport right from the go. It might be trickier for a full Le Mans grid to manage that mandate. I don't know. I would say do it in the GTE class immediately. Hmm. You know, that's only a third of the grid, less than a third of the grid at the present way that the WEC is playing out. Well, Hmm. I've got a new driver to support in the WEC and I'm going to be following Lilo Wadu's career with great attention from now on. Now, my two takeaways from Spa, I don't know about you, Gareth, but my two big takeaways were, first of all, looks like the other hypercars behind the Toyotas are closing the gap. Yeah. So it looks like for Le Mans, things will be more competitive. And I'm expecting a terrific race, a particularly terrific race. Correct. Even Cadillac seem to make some solid progress. The other thing, though, is cold tyres seem to be causing a lot of problems. Maybe ditching the tyre warmers was not a good idea. I mean, I think we talked, whether it was on the last show or previously, about bringing fewer tyres to... Formula One races, I think it was, as a green initiative. And I was a little bit sceptical that that was the right kind of green initiative for the sport because I was speculating without knowing the numbers, but, you know, that it's a bit more of a greenwash than something that's really addressing a big issue or a big problem or really improving things very much. And ending the use of tyre warmers in WEC looks rather similar to me. It looks like something that's a bit of greenwashing. It's a thing that you could point to. It's a very definite, concrete step. You could say, this is a green initiative, but... I'm sure it saves only the tiniest amount of energy compared to the amount of energy that the race event consumes over the weekend. The amount of energy that tyre warmers are using is tiny. And the difference that it's making to what happens in the race is significant and not positive. I don't think that a Ferrari spinning as soon as it comes out of the pits <laughs> and almost wiping itself out on the wall is a good thing. Yeah, the cold tyre thing, okay, This is another challenge that drivers just have to get on top of. 
but I think it maybe is a bit too much of a hazard. It doesn't seem to be worth it. Just how big a hazard, though, is it? Because in Spa, we had 40 cars, 30-something cars running for six hours, and there were only one and a half incidents attributable to cold tyres. Antonio Fuoco in the Ferrari 499p, he managed to screw up his outlap and... Jeopardy, you know, come on, drivers, you're going to learn how to drive. You, drivers should know when their tires are cold. No, and fair point, fair drive point, with, yep. yep. And the other incident, the Cadillac, when that spun off, it wasn't because of gold tires, it was because it bottomed out at Eau Rouge, as I understand. The other big incident, which was the Floyd Van Wall, it's not a Van Wall, with Villeneuve driving it, that yeah, was that uh, that contact tires. from a GTE behind. Yeah, so I'm not sure how big an issue it is. It certainly adds a frisson of risk to those outlaps but come on these are professional racing drivers lewis has described losing tire warmers in formula one if and when it happens as being a safety issue well just drive a little bit slower otherwise you could say driving in the rain is a safety issue you could say that driving with other cars on the track is a safety issue i think we have to accept a certain amount of risk it's part of the sport so we back you out of the way Next race is Miami, one of Perez's 36 home races, in my opinion. Zog, who's going to win in Miami? Mm, I think Perez is on a roll. Could it be Perez again? I'm going to say Perez and will it to happen. Okay, good. Sarah? Yeah, I'd like to say the same thing, please. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement. I think Perez has got a bit of purchase at the moment, a bit of momentum, and we wish him all the best for the next race because we love him. He's a lovely guy, isn't he? He is. Forza Checo. Gareth Jones on speed. News cough. Toto Wolff said today that whilst there were no immediate plans for Charles Leclerc to join the Mercedes F1 team, that Leclerc was definitely a long-term option for the Mercedes Formula One team. But what did Toto mean exactly by long-term? Could he mean at the end of the 2023 season? Because with 23 races, that sounds pretty long to me. Before we get on to the meat and two veg of this second half of Gareth Jones on Speed, first, a little bit of F1 gossip. Zonk, you spotted something this last week which only just sort of made my perception. But it's potentially quite a big story, isn't it? Fernando Alonso has a new girlfriend. What? Come on, this is the story of the year, surely. <laughs> I thought Fernando Alonso was in a stable relationship. Well, is he, though? The story is that Fernando Alonso is now stepping out with Taylor Swift. Really? Uh, really? 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 Listen, this is the story. And as the kids say, I'm here for it. Fernando has denied it. It does seem to be a bit of nonsense that somebody's cooked up and there's actually nothing to it. But please let it be true. Please let this happen. <laughs> I... I you know, if we can have Martin Brundle getting a quick word with Taylor Swift on the grid later in the year, I want to see that later in the year. I want Tanando or Fernlaw, not sure which is going to be, to happen. Oh, I see you've combined their names like Brad Pitt and Mrs. Brad Pitt or whoever it is, Brangela, was it? Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, it was Brangelina, right? right. And Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, 
Kim Ye. Yeah. So I think, you know, Fernando Alonso and Taylor Swift, it's got to be Tanando or Fernlaw, I think. All right, well, Sarah, damn it, I'm pretty sure that you were hoping for Fernandlich, <laughs> weren't you, or something? I mean. <laughs> oh, look, I think he's a good driver, but I've never really had the hot scream, I suppose. But he's always been in a stable relationship. I've always seen he's had a partner around the track. She looks like quite an attractive girl, so it would surprise me. But also, knowing Fernando Alonso as much as I do, which is not a lot, but, you know, we know his persona, I can't imagine he'd be starstruck or quite taken by a Hollywood singer. (laughs) But you never know. Well, I can absolutely believe you. I can absolutely believe that Fernando isn't a man who's easily impressed. Yeah. He's not somebody that's easily bolder. But... Come on, Taylor Swift. She's a good singer. She is, quite apart from whatever else she has going on, she's a very intelligent, very talented performer. I'm guessing you're a fan. (laughs) Intelligent and talented, so yes. (laughs) I am, absolutely. I'm a big Taylor Swift fan, absolutely. Yeah, she's very good. Yeah, she's Uh, good, but... Why wouldn't you be a Taylor Swift fan? I mean, it's been a long time since any of the Formula One drivers have had any sort of high-profile Hollywood girlfriends, I suppose. I mean, there's not many of them have, I guess, famous, in inverted commas, girlfriends at the moment. Nicole Scherzinger was the the most famous, wasn't she? Although isn't Bottas now in a relationship with a big Australian Olympian? Is she a cyclist or a skier or something? I saw that. No, she's a cyclist. But, I mean, I don't know her name. But, I mean, I trust she's a good one. I mean, yeah, she's a cyclist. Anyway, enough. Just last thought. I just wonder if this rumour, if one of the reasons this has kind of come about, has it has something to do with this possible Brad Pitt-related Formula One movie. Yeah. Ah, that's probably it. Being in kind of pre-production at the moment. They've been along to one or two of the Grand Prix. Yeah, apparently filming that. I met someone who was working on it the other week. He was actually working on it as a camera assistant. They were filming already. I can't remember where he said. I think Silverstone, they were shooting something up there. I I think apparently that's going to cause a bit of disruption at some of the races, filming that movie. Yeah, I can imagine it would. It would never have happened in Bernie Eccleston's (laughs) Well, in other Hollywood, uh, no, he'd, he'd never have done anything for a quick buck. That's uh, inconceivable that he'd allow anything uh, odd or uh, surprising to happen if there was money involved. <laughs> okay, let's talk about sensible stuff, shall we? Before we do go on to that, <laughs> one last Hollywood comment. The Met Gala was on last night. Daniel Ricciardo was spotted in Hollywood at the Met Gala. Did you see his suit? No. Was he dressed as a cat? No, but he had a fairly sharp suit on. I was, quite, you know, he did okay. look. He looked. He looked quite fashionable. That's for sure. He didn't look. Like Lewis Hamilton fashionable. Lewis Hamilton's been at the Met Gala before, but I suppose while everybody else is racing around as a Jabbar, Daniel Ricciardo was getting his suit (laughs) tailored, ready for the Met Gala. Looking sharp in New York. He was looking very sharp. That's correct. Well, he's going to be a big name in the States now, isn't he, Daniel Ricciardo, thanks to Drive to Survive. So he's going to get invited to stuff like the Met Gala, any Formula One driver. The Met Gala, is that what it's called? Yeah. The yeah. Met Gala. Yep. yep, right. Well, hey, it shows you how au fait I am with that sort of thing. But yeah, good luck to him. Good luck to him. Right, let's talk sensible stuff. Really boring, sensible stuff. Sustainable fuels in motorsport. It's something that we talked about for at least, I think, 10 years on Gareth Jones on Speed. I know that because I recorded a song in the style of Neil Young many, many years ago called The Fuel of Cars to Come, all about using biofuel. But finally, 
by 2026, F1 is going to switch to biofuel completely. At the moment, they're running on E10, or the equivalent of E10, where 10% of the mix of the fuel that they're using is from biofuels. The WEC already runs on entirely biofuel supplied by Total Energies. So once again, you know, the WEC slightly ahead of Formula One. But Formula One has to do this because biofuels or sustainable fuels are going to become more and more important in road cars over the next few years as we realise not everyone will be able to shift to battery electric vehicles or hydrogen fuel cell cars. And there'll be an awful lot of internal combustion engine cars that need fuel to run on still running. So are you a big fan of biofuel, synthetic fuels? Basically, yes. As a way to enable a lot of people to maybe keep enjoying older internal combustion engine cars whilst keeping the environmental impact of that, the carbon footprint impact of that down, which let's remember, however convinced you are about climate change, at least this will make it more socially acceptable for you to use your old banger uh, or my old banger. Biofuel, sustainable fuels are... We've just lost Zog because Zog went to turn the volume up on his headphones and accidentally turned it off and disconnected the call, I think, Sarah. So yeah. hopefully he'll rejoin us in a moment. Sarah, well, Zog's doing that. You work with a firm who are researching, what do they call it, high fuel, which was a hydrogen-based fuel. Yeah, yes. Gosh, you're a better memory than me, and I was the one that did the job. Um, but it, was, um, <laughs> it was a sustainable fuel with uh, P1 fuels to supply sustainable fuels to the World Rally Championship. And using the World Rally Championship, I suppose, as, I guess, a debut into vehicles, including aeroplanes, road cars, and race cars, to see if they can actually supply that market. Yeah, so it's, it's a, definitely a huge industry now, because I think that's definitely the way the fuels are going. And the Formula One want to do the same thing. Yeah, I think Formula One ought to catch up. I think IndyCar uses sustainable fuels, if not completely sustainable. I know they run their cars on methanol, nitromethanol ethanol like model aero engines in indycar and so formula one is a little bit behind things so welcome back you accidentally turned your connection off there yeah i'm not sure what happened there so we're now in a position whereby we're looking to source fuels rather than digging it out of the ground having been there for 65 or 100 million years we're now able to grow fuel if you like or produce fuel from algae specifically cyanobacteria blue green algae which i've swum through actually on my journey across wales i swam through swarms of blue green algae i should have harvested them and said lads can you produce some oil for us because there are a number of ways of creating synthetic fuels aren't there zog you can either use algae which i'm a big fan of or you can use yeast like they do in brazil and turn sugarcane and all that kind of stuff into fuel into alcohol really isn't it they're brewing you can produce bioethanol from plant feedstock you can produce biobutanol and other biofuels from algae as you say and you can also use chemical processes you know you can just use you know a large chemical plant to synthesize a liquid fuel but the big issue with all of these, you know, however you're doing this, there's a lot of devil in the detail of how efficient your process is. You know, it's only a good idea to go down this route of replacing your liquid dino fuel with either a synthetic or a biofuel. If the environmental impact of that, of making that fuel, most significantly 
the carbon footprint of making that replacement fuel is significantly lower than the dyno fuel. And that isn't necessarily the case because there can be all sorts of issues to do with the energy input and other inputs into your production process mean that actually your gallon of potentially green artificial or biofuel actually has quite a carbon footprint. Coming back to commenting on the FIA World Rally Championship and the fuels that they're using, it was P1 fuels and how that's made. It's with a company called OCI High Fuels. So it's 100% sustainable green methanol products. So created from industrial and food waste. So, and they're looking at developing this fuel as a fuel that powers high performance engines under the most extreme conditions. So they're trying it out in motorsport to then, you know, hopefully broaden it to say aeroplanes and other vehicles. They describe that as 100% sustainable. Mm. It could still be 100% sustainable. Or I think, you know, they could still describe it without having any problems with an advertising standards agency or anything, you could describe it as 100% sustainable even if the carbon footprint of producing that fuel is relatively high. Yeah. Because they say 100% sustainable, they don't say anything about how much energy goes into producing that yeah, fuel. Yeah, a lot of synthetic mm. fuels, as I understand, are energy negative. It takes more energy to create them than you actually get out of them. And there's another downside as well. A lot of synthetic fuel in the United States is made from corn. That's bioethanol. Yeah, which is going into the fuel mix, the petrol, the gasoline mix, as they say, on American forecourts. But America doesn't just feed America, it feeds a large part of the world as well. And the consequence of turning over these cornfields into producing fuel as opposed to producing food has meant that the cost of producing corn for food has gone up and that puts the cost of Mm. all food up because corn oil is in so many other things and corn is in so many other foods that we that americans particularly eat so there is a kind of a downside to sustainable fuels you know they may be sustainable but at a cost this is exactly what i mean about the devil being in the detail if to grow the crop that you're going to produce your biofuel from you have to use agricultural land that you could be using to grow food for people on and maize corn is food for people i love sweet corn it's absolutely one of my favorite vegetables it's a bad idea to use that land for growing the feedstock for your biofuel if you can use land that you can't use for growing crops for people that's great you know if you can take a lot of shrubs or woodier plants rather than corn you have much less impact on your food economy by producing biofuel and we don't have enough agricultural land we really can't afford to take productive agricultural land away to make biofuel i remember a speech that george w bush made possibly 15 20 years ago now i can't remember where he was talking about using switchgrass to create synthetic fuel. So moving it away from direct food production, but using, like you say, less critical crops, which may be grown in a more resilient environment, a less fruitful environment, perhaps, than you need for corn. And the other thing is that it's very water thirsty. I was going to say hungry, but water thirsty as well. You need a great deal of water to produce corn, to turn it into fuel. And there is a shortage for water as well so maybe synthetic fuels are far from the greatest answer 
that we have at the moment. They're part of the solution. They're not the solution. The fuel, by the way, in the WEC, Total Energy's Excelum Racing 100, is made from agricultural waste, the vast majority of it from grapes, from wine production. Total, mm. a French company, typical mm. of them to seize that opportunity. Well done. Now, that sort of thing, from byproducts, making fuel from byproducts, brilliant. That makes a great deal of sense, doesn't it? But Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Turning over where we have to grow food, and there is a food shortage, there is a water shortage on the planet, turning that into fuel might not be the best idea, which is why I think algae is the answer, because algae will grow in salty water, briny water, in bracken water. You know, you don't need fresh water to do that. That's a much better place to grow your fuel, isn't it? Algae grows in all kinds of water, but you need to be growing the algae that produces biobutanol or biodiesel or whatever, or some kind of biofat or oil that you're then going to turn into fuel. And so that algae might only grow in one particular kind of water. Hopefully it will be fairly tolerant of conditions, but maybe not. There is a, a byproduct as well of using algae to create oil in that it can simultaneously create protein kind of it looks like dried seaweed which you can use as animal food so it's a really mm. efficient way of creating fuel i'm a huge fan of the idea of algae for this i think it's a potentially a tremendous way of taking energy in sunlight and turning that into energy in a tank it's a good way of doing that whether we've got the right algae and the right processes to do it efficiently yet i don't think we have you know we're on the way there and hopefully the issues in large-scale production from algae aren't too great but there are going to be problems on scaling this up and making it economical on a large scale it's going to change geopolitics because up to now if you want fuel you're either what american or russian or norwegian you know this is where the oil and the coal comes from or chinese but it's going to shift towards countries like south america or warmer countries in the damper parts of africa for instance where you can grow crops or grow algae and you can make fuel it is going to change the shape of the politics of the planet in the near future i think i'm not so sure about that though because the thing is that fossil fuels all of those petroleum deposits even if you were to say tomorrow that you can't use any of that in transport even if you couldn't burn it in cars lorries and power stations it's still very valuable because of the chemical industry because of all of the chemical products yeah. that you produce from petroleum. Arguably, we're insane, and we've been insane for the last hundred years, to, to burn the stuff as enthusiastically as we have, given that it's a finite resource that is so useful for producing so many chemical products that we use. So yeah, I think it'll be a slow shift, not a sudden revolution, I think. Yeah, and of course, the vehicles that we drive, not so much the engines, but all the pipes and the tubes that connect them will have to be uprated so they can work with synthetic fuels as opposed to oil, petrochemical-based stuff. I remember the Lotus Tri-Fuel I had a few years ago. I had all the hoses replaced with silicon hoses. And, of course, biofuels produce slightly lower-grade octane fuel than petrochemical fuels they don't quite have the energy density is that the term zog that petrol has but i bet you could create a biofuel that would have the same i'm questioning whether there's anything that necessarily makes your biofuel lower octane than your dyno fuel i'm going to say that if you're a clever enough biofuel 
chemist, you can get something with the same octane rating. If not, I want to know why not. Okay, listen, we're going to wrap this up. Five minutes, you guys, on something else that's got nothing to do with cars. There is a link. We talked about alternative fuels for cars. Last week, SpaceX almost completely successfully, I'm going to say it that much, launched a rocket which runs on methane, methane and oxygen. And it went pretty well, better than I was expecting, but not as well as most people were expecting. Sarah, you didn't see the SpaceX Starship launch live, did you, by any chance? I know Zog and I did. You know what, I did. Did you? Yeah, yeah, well, I saw it on the news because BBC were replaying it all day that day and I happened to be in front of the TV that day. So I I did actually see it, but it was an Elon Musk-motivated launch and it had no passengers in the ship. So, I mean, he obviously thinks he's going to be able to, you know, start life on the moon or something, which I don't think will happen. Well, if you want to bet that he's not going to get to the moon, I will take that bet. That he's not going to. I was just saying you were expressing some scepticism there. What I'm saying is if you want to make a bet right now as to whether SpaceX are going to land something on the moon in, let's say, the next six years, I will take that bet. I'm saying that I'm confident that SpaceX will land something on the moon in the next six years. I'm sure they will, but I very much doubt they're going to start life on a new planet. Well, yeah, but the living on another world thing <laughs> is a whole... I think that's... It's, that's... it's hard, and I, I agree that that's a much bigger challenge than getting to either the moon or Mars. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I understand moving countries, moving cities, moving homes, but moving planets... <laughs> <laughs> it's too think much big. I love these people who think big. You know, we're going to have to, as, <laughs> as Elon Musk says, if we're going to survive as a species, we need to become a multi-planetary species but that is generations and generations away and these are first steps to get us there and yes spacex will reach the moon because nasa have now commissioned spacex a version of their starship to be the lunar lander for the artemis 3 mission which is going to happen in four years five years which probably means six they're saying three but i think it's six years away artemis 2 next year will orbit the moon artemis 3 will land on the moon using Starship as the lunar transport vehicle just to get them from lunar orbit to the the moon's surface. Really exciting if you're a rocket nut like me. So two minutes on the Starship. How successful was the Starship launch, in your opinion? Let's say very successful, much more successful than it looked. Yeah, agreed, yeah. Because this was a test and a first test of that configuration of Starship which is several test flights already, and it's booster, super heavy booster, and they haven't tested Starship on top of the booster. So it was a test of that system, and it was completely successful in that the booster and Starship launched successfully. Yeah. That's what your first test is all about. Yeah. They weren't intending to reuse either the Starship or the booster. It doesn't matter if they're destroyed in the course of the test as long as your launch is successful. And so it was a successful launch. But... And there are a couple of big butts. First of all, they did a lot of damage to the launch pad, and that is not a trivial issue. They need to do a lot of repairs to the launch pad, which got very badly chewed up by the very powerful rocket motors blasting down. The rocket was held on the pad for a couple of seconds more than maybe was ideal and maybe was planned. Many tons of concrete were chewed up and thrown out and scattered around the sub 
surrounding area, damaging a lot of SpaceX hardware. And half of Texas um, in the process. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're going to need to repair that launch pad and they might want to redesign it with a water deluge and a flame diverter yep. so that they don't have that problem again in the future. Also, the Environmental Protection Agency and the FAA are apparently taking a bit more interest in SpaceX launches following this launch because there are some real questions about the environmental impact of a launch like that and whether SpaceX had properly assess the risks and there may be a bit more scrutiny of them for future launches and that might just have an impact on the moon program on the artemis program because it may slow down the rate of starship progress. yeah they've got to be careful because they're messing with huge amounts of energy that is the most powerful rocket ever to leave planet earth couple of takeaways two things as far as i know spacex are going to put a steel plate in under the orbital launch very soon and a water deluge system they claim that it, that will take between four and eight weeks for that to happen so that will prevent certain amounts of damage on takeoff second of all the motors that failed some people were speculating that the reason the motors failed was that concrete was bounced back up into the engine and broke it right yeah apparently that's not the case despite what you would think there oh. seem to have been a couple of RUDs rapid unplanned rapid unplanned disassemblies on a couple of the motors or one of the motors which took out a couple of other motors around it that's what went wrong as far as I know from Elon Musk's statement I think of yesterday so they're working the problem. Okay. It's iterative, you know. They launch, it breaks. They fix what breaks. They launch, they fix the next thing that breaks, and eventually they'll get there. We wish them well. I wish yeah. I had more time to talk about this on the program now, but we're going to have to wrap it up. But for now, Sarah, happy landings. <laughs> Goodbye. And Zong, I'll see you on the far side of the moon. See you there. <laughs> so long, everyone. For information on how to contact the show, see pictures, get song lyrics, follow us on Twitter, find our Facebook fan page, or to sponsor the show, go to GarethJones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed!